0: 1 Timothy 5, you'll follow along with me, verse 17, Paul says, "...let the elders who rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in the word and doctrine. For the scripture says, "...you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain." The laborer is worthy of his wages." Do not receive an accusation against an elder except from two or three witnesses. Those who are sinning, rebuke in the presence of all, that the rest also may fear. I charge you before God and the Lord Jesus Christ and the elect angels that you observe these things without prejudice, doing nothing with partiality. Do not lay hands on anyone hastily nor share in other people's sins. Keep yourself pure. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for your stomach's sake and your frequent infirmities. Some men's sins are clearly evident, preceding them to judgment, but those of some men will follow later. Likewise, the good works of some are clearly evident, and those that are otherwise cannot be Hidden And Father, we just humbly ask in this moment, Lord, give us grace and all the help of your Spirit to be able to have an ear to hear what your Spirit wants to say through what you have already spoken here by the Spirit in the Word of God. Lord, help us to see and to hear and to understand what it is you want to teach us this morning that we might increase in the knowledge of you, God. And we ask this expectantly in Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen. Amen. You may be seated. You know, I have found that sometimes our natural thinking or even just our emotions and just the way that we reason things out humanly will from time to time, I've found, be challenged by the Spirit-inspired truth of the Word of God. And the Spirit-inspired truth of the Word of God reveals to us God's way. And again, the Bible tells us that God declares, my ways are not your ways and my thoughts are are not your thoughts, and at times, God's ways are higher and different than our ways, and so because of that, God's will and God's way and how we're to operate, which is given to us in the Spirit-inspired Word of God, will from time to time challenge and kind of confront our natural thinking patterns, maybe our emotions or feelings towards something or the way we might reason things out. And in such instances, the crucial thing is that we learn how to yield in faith, trusting that God is right and God always knows what's best. And whether it makes sense to us or it feels right to us that we trust the authority and truth of God's word over everything else. And such, I believe, is the case of some of what our passage addresses right here this morning. Paul now returns to the subject of leadership, and just as solid leadership and just as healthy leadership is really an essential thing for families naturally, the same is true for the spiritual family of what we refer to as the church. Solid and healthy spiritual leadership is essential for the church. It's often been said everything can rise or fall upon leadership. And in the book of 1 Timothy, as we've worked our way through it, we've mentioned many times, specifically this letter is written with a purposeful intention that we might know how to conduct ourselves, he said chapter 3, in the house of God. So it is a specific letter given to us by the Holy Spirit in the New Testament to show us how to operate among the church how the local church is to function in many different areas and arenas of its operation. And we saw back in chapter 3, there, the criteria for identifying and selecting spiritual leaders or for church workers, and he gave, remember, a list of standards there, mainly character traits that should be revealed in the life of someone who God's identifying as a leader, as well as character traits that must be maintained, I believe, to remain qualified to continue to function as a leader. And he gave that to us in chapter 3. Now he seems to be addressing how church leaders, what we often refer to as elders or overseers or pastors, these are synonymous terms, how they are to be treated among the church with God's family. And I think in these verses we receive both instructions specifically about that subject but there are also some really wonderful spiritual principles that we can apply to all of our lives as we go through this together. So look with me back in verse 17 as our text opens and begins. He says, Let the elders who rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in the word and doctrine. So God speaks here about the importance Of the church collectively, the church family, properly appreciating in due respect those leaders that God has spiritually appointed to oversee the church, and particularly, he mentions those who are faithfully fulfilling that role well. He doesn't just say those who rule, but he mentions those particularly even who rule well. Now, the term elder basically in the New Testament refers to the spiritually mature man. The man who has come to a place, so it doesn't matter how long they've been a Christian, as much as how much they've developed and grown and matured as a believer. And it's to be measured by that reality. It's the man who's developed in his solid Christian character and growth, and it's a term used in connection to a man prepared and appointed for spiritual leadership. In fact, in 1 Peter chapter 5, Peter uses that specific word, addressing church leaders. He says, to the elders among you, I also appeal as a fellow elder. And then he said, shepherd the flock of God, which is among you, serving as overseers. And so he addresses things in that way whereby he's trying to convey the idea of what spiritual leaders are to be doing. To oversee the affairs of God's family, to function in a way where they're taking care of the church, making decisions, including a group of men who have been basically set aside for that role to function in shepherding God's flock and teaching the word of God. And of course, this includes what we often refer to from a title perspective, and the Bible uses the term as well as those who are pastors. And those who would do that shepherding work, and that's really what the word pastor speaks of, those who do that primary work of shepherding the flock and teaching the flock, feeding God's sheep to keep them healthy through spiritual instruction. So in chapter 3, he sees and speaks about the qualifications that should be looked for to appoint someone to spiritual leadership, or really just to recognize what God has already done. And then he also uses those qualifications, as I said, to be, I believe, criteria that we allow someone to continue serving in that leadership capacity, that they must maintain those things. Now he comes to this idea in verse 17, and in this chapter through the remainder of it, where he starts to address how these individuals are to be related to and treated by the entirety of the church body. And the first thing he says in verse 17 is he says, let the elders who rule well, and I have that word circled, notice, rule well. Now, the fact that the Holy Spirit puts that in there, to me, indicates that apparently it's possible to be an elder, to have that role or position, and not to rule well. (laughs) Uh, it seems to indicate God's trying to specify something specifically with the term that he uses descriptively, those who rule well in handling church affairs. That word well, and the word well just generally speaks of doing something in an appropriate way. When you do anything well, you do it good, you do it thorough, right? You do it with excellence. That athlete performed really well, or this worker performs really well, and that's the idea of this. So again, sadly, Apparently, some holding that position, and maybe sadly some of us have been disheartened or discouraged by our own experiences in church life, there are those from time to time who may hold the position of spiritual leadership, and they may not be doing it very well. It could be that they hold the position, but honestly, they give very little attention or effort to fulfilling it, and they're somewhat negligent in the role. And they they do certain things that they enjoy maybe in the position, but other parts they kind of neglect and they don't do very well. At times, sadly as well, even worse, there are those who can have that role of being an elder or a spiritual leader, and they use that role in an abusive manner. And they become a very unhealthy, narcissistic, and just completely off the beaten track person who has that role and authority and uses it not for edification, but they end up harming and destroying more lives than they end up helping sometimes. And it's sad to say, but that's just a reality. But what he's describing here, which certainly is the ideal, just like ruling our families well, he talked about in chapter three as leaders. Here he speaks of those who do this job of spiritual leadership, and they do it in a very solid healthy way. They give excellence to it. They take it seriously. They engage in aiming for excellence in how they provide oversight, how they provide leadership, how they oversee the affairs of the church and shepherd the flock and care for God's people. And he says, those that do such, verse 17, if they are ruling well, then he says to the church, they should be counted worthy of double honor. And again, the idea there is being honored not only for their willingness to be a leader. And all that does entail, and any of us who have led in any area know that it involves a great degree more to lead, but also for endeavoring to be a good leader, and not just embracing the title or having the role, but really doing a great job, doing it well, being faithful to that important role entrusted to them, giving their best to the responsibility. He says that's a noble thing when a elder does such well within the church. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 says this, Dear brothers and sisters, honor those who are among you whom are your leaders in the Lord's work. They work hard among you to oversee things and give you spiritual guidance. And then he says, esteem them very highly in love for the work that they do. So he says, those who do well, worthy of Double honor. And then he adds, going on in verse 17, especially, the idea is particularly those church leaders who are the main ones, he says, verse 17, who labor in the word and doctrine. That is, those who are in particular leaders who are actually also doing the work of teaching the word of God, laboring and putting in the work and the diligent effort to prepare messages from the word of God to deliver teachings and to give instruction from God's word both collectively to the congregation as well as in personal settings using God's word to teach and to counsel and guide people's lives in addition to just regular leadership responsibilities of oversight and he says here this is something that not only for those who rule out but he says especially those who have that additional responsibility who put in the extra effort, the diligent time. And I tell you, it is a labor to teach the Word of God. And I hope if you teach the Word of God, or you know anyone who does teach the Word of God, that you would recognize that. That to do that well and to do that effectively, it is a labor. It is a work involved in doing that. It is something that, again, certainly maybe some may be great showmen, but I, you know, I can't just get up here and speak extemporaneously. <laughs> It doesn't happen. What typically transpires, you know, particularly even, you know, for a a Sunday morning, I probably spend on average somewhere to, I'd say, 15 to 17 hours for teaching a Sunday morning just in preparing and, and, and adequately being ready to communicate the Word of God. And I've already taught through the entire Bible once with one congregation, and I'm getting pretty close to working our way through here now with a, a second congregation as the Lord's moved me on. But nonetheless, it is a labor, and it should be a labor. It's a process to feed the flock, to nourish the congregation, to make sure they're spiritually healthy, to make sure they're getting sound, healthy doctrine so that the church stays on mission and on course. And he says, those who do such are worthy of double honor. And that word honor is the same word we saw back at the beginning of chapter 5, if you were with us there, where he talked about honoring widows who were really widows. And remember, he was talking about practically honoring them, not just respecting them. But he was basically using that term, it's the Greek term where we get our English today, honorarium, which is basically a term that speaks of a financial payment to show appreciation or to show value. And so this is the idea of what no doubt he is to a great degree speaking about supplying financial compensation as a way of showing appreciation to those church leaders, to those elders, pastors, overseers who are doing such and doing it well. And we know that's the case from the context because look at our next verse. He then says to substantiate his train of thought, verse 18, for the scripture says, Paul says, this isn't my idea. I'm building this principle from the word of God. The scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain and the laborer, is worthy of his wages. So substantiate God's plan in this. He supports his reasoning via scripture. And let me always say that should always be the way that we substantiate our reasoning in anything. When we make our decisions, when we make our life choices, we should always say, I can say this on the authority of scripture. When when Pentecost happened and the Holy Spirit fell and people were confused, Peter substantiated what happened. He says, this is what the scripture has spoken of. And he quoted from Joel chapter two, that God would pour out his spirit on all flesh. And so we should be able to, and here he quotes from both the Old Testament and the New Testament, referring to both as scripture at the time of this writing already in 1 Timothy chapter five, regarding how honoring a church leader who leads well, and especially as one laboring, teaching the word of God, quoting first from Deuteronomy chapter 5, where the Bible says in the scripture, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. Now, what he's referring to there, the image was very common in their minds in an agrarian culture, where the ox would do the hard work of repeatedly walking in a systematic routine pattern, a lot of times in a circular pattern, but just keeping to a systematic pattern, routinely going around and round, pulling the heavy threshing sledge to separate the wheat and the chaff and the chaff from the grain. Basically, it was a laborious work required as the ox would pull that sledge in order to prepare the grain as food for people to be nourished by. And so basically, he says here, look, it would be rather inhumane and not fair to that working ox who's preparing food and a meal to nourish others, to slap a muzzle on him and not let him feed himself to some degree from the very work that he's doing that provides nourishment and feeds others. And again, if you were to starve an ox doing such, that's not going to work ultimately because the ox is going to get weak and it's going to get tired, and it's going to get overworked to a degree, and its performance is going to drastically drop off, right? So he says, look, this is just an appropriate thing. You shouldn't muzzle an ox while it's working hard to feed others. It deserves to be able to partake of some of the work that it's doing. Well, Paul later explains how that illustrated this idea of God's provision for spiritual workers. 1 Corinthians 9, Paul says this, quoting that same verse there. He says, whoever goes to war, serving as a soldier at his own expense, who plants a vineyard and does not eat of that fruit's vineyard, who tends a flock and does not drink of the milk of the flock, do I say these things from mere human reasoning or does not the law say the same also? And then he says, for it is written in the law of Moses, quoting our same text, you shall not muzzle an ox. While it treads out the grain. And Paul says, Is it oxen that God was really concerned about? Or does he say it altogether for our sakes? For our sakes, no doubt. In other words, Paul was saying, Certainly, if that principle applies to an animal and to an ox, he said, Certainly, it applies all the more to human beings. And he's referencing this in regards to those who are plowing and preparing the food of the Word of God to be able to feed the people of God. Again, is it always necessary to exercise that right? Paul says in that very same chapter, look, we don't even always exercise this right, but nonetheless, Paul says, though we don't always partake of that right, there are times to refrain from it appropriately, but he says, but yet the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should make their living from the gospel. Now, as he quotes this, he's basically establishing a principle in Scripture that a spiritual worker is entitled to compensation financially for doing spiritual work, even as workers in all other fields are adequately supported in financial compensation for whatever form of work they do vocationally. He then secondly quotes from the words of Jesus in Luke chapter 10 and verse 18, where Jesus himself, who again is what? The chief shepherd among the church. He's the head of the church. And Jesus himself, when he sent out in Luke chapter 10, workers to go do ministry for the kingdom of God, it's when Jesus made this statement, the laborers are worthy of their wages, In other words, Jesus said those who are fully engaged, occupying their time in spiritual work, he says men doing that work deserve reasonable financial compensation. They are deserving of that work payment, even like a laborer and any other form of work deserves compensation and wages for what they do as well. As I said, is that necessary or required to do ministry work to be financially compensated? Of course not. But the Bible teaches, God says, it is legitimate, and it is what's best when financial resources are sufficiently available among a church to be able to do such with its workers, with its pastors, with its leaders, to relieve the minister from other employment, to engage fully in the Lord's work. And I want to say to you, both being a part of Calvary Chapel York for the 13 years we planted and pastored that church in here, I am so thankful to have been a part of two very healthy, spiritually-minded congregations with a board of overseers both times, who have been very biblically-minded and spiritually sensitive, who have always taken incredibly good care of myself and my family and have allowed us to be able to give our full attention to ministry and and, and such a blessing to be a part of that. Let me just say in connection to this, Obviously, it could appear and it could feel a little self-serving to teach verses 17 and 18. And understandably so. And perhaps even this morning, you may have your own predisposed views or ideas towards financial compensation for church workers or pastors or missionaries or leaders. And let me just say, the bottom line is we're just working our way through the entirety of the word of God. And we're just being faithful to the integrity of every part of God's Spirit-inspired Word, which brings me to an application from a spiritual principle. Verses like this and teaching verses like this from this side of the pulpit and your side of the pulpit really remind us that in spiritual life and in church function, despite our natural human thoughts or what our feelings are about something, that at the end of the day, what is always right and best is to obediently observe the word of God and to be a scripturally minded and a biblically surrendered people in all areas, not just verse 17 and 18 but that every area of the word of God that may make us a little squeamish or change our preconceived ideas or challenge our feelings or thoughts, maturity spiritually sets aside emotion. It sets aside preconceived past experiences and says, you know what, nevertheless, what does the word of God say? And you just exercise your will to embrace obeying the word of God in faith because you trust God's design is best now. Verse nineteen, he goes on to say, and do not receive an accusation, a charge of guilt in some way against an elder, a spiritual leader, except from two or three witnesses. So this verse describes how to handle accusatory charges for wrongdoing that will be brought and can be brought from time to time against perhaps a spiritual leader. Another translation of this same verse says it this way. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. See, again, God understanding how good solid leadership is never an easy task. Someone's trying to make decisions. They're trying to guide people, nor is it possible to lead effectively in any arena for that matter without there being misunderstandings, without being disagreed with, without at times being challenged, or even being attacked because of motives or things that happen. And look, that applies in military leadership, that applies in business leadership, and certainly it applies in church leadership as well, perhaps in some ways I think sometimes it could be a bigger challenge to lead in church leadership because there's a whole spiritual component of not just doing what you think is best as a leader, but basically trying to always do what honors God because you realize he's the ultimate leader and he's the chief authority. And many times the spiritual leader, in my opinion, if you're doing what's best, I often say to our board of overseers, our job is not to provide direction to the church, Our job is to receive direction for the church, and then to implement that to get to know the mind of the Lord. That's why, you know, to this day, and you can ask any of the guys who serve in that capacity, when we do a board meeting, we we, we spend time praying first, we read a chapter of the scripture first, because I want to be as spiritually minded as possible to receive direction to then implement whatever Jesus, the chief shepherd and overseer of our souls, wants for us. And then you throw into that things like spiritual warfare and, you know, the devil trying to work lies and cause division and get people to question things, which is what he's been doing since the Garden of Eden. And the Bible tells us, strike the shepherd and then the sheep are scattered. And a leader's credibility and their integrity is the basis of their leadership maintaining their credibility is really what gives them the opportunity to lead in that role. And because of that, God knows it is absolutely crucial to be able, when needed to, to distinguish between what is just slander and what is genuine spiritual transgression in some way or some sinful infraction. And God says, look, it is crucial to be able for the church to distinguish because, look, both can happen. He's going to say in the next verse, if it really did happen, if there really is a moral failure or a pastor's in sin, that that happens at times. But he says there are other times where something may just be a disgruntled person or slander. And so in light of this, God puts into place here in verse 19 a protocol, if you notice, to protect against unfair accusations or slanderous things, or even misunderstandings, that he says the church is not to listen to such things with suspicion and to entertain accepting such things of charges of guilt unless, notice, unless there is credible evidence, the ideas he says there, that can be substantiated by two or three witnesses. He says that is to be part of of the protocol. Are there two or three people who can give firsthand testimony to that guilt that it's factual? Now again, this is not unfairly giving special preference to a leader to provide protection among the good old boys club. That's not what this is at all, because the same standard existed if you go read your Old Testament. In Deuteronomy chapter 17 and chapter 19, any person in the society of the congregation of Israel, could not be put to death or held guilty for a charge unless on two or three witnesses validating that indeed they had stolen from someone or murdered someone. Again, this was just criteria God puts in place because he knows human nature, and he knows human beings misunderstand things. He knows sometimes people get disgruntled, they say things, ulterior motives, spiritual warfare of the devil, and God puts this into place to shield the leader from those times when it's just slander and it's not a genuine, validated thing of guilt of some thing. Listen, I- I've lived this reality out in one sense when I was at the prior church we were pastoring before in, a, in somewhat of an intense manner where we had an individual in our congregation who I spoke to about something that needed correction and I spoke to them and they got disgruntled because I corrected in a sense addressing something that I did not think was you know appropriate in their life and so I you know uh, reproved and somewhat addressed the situation and afterwards the person became a self-proclaimed prophet of the lord and what long story short transpired you know it was my, um, myself and my two daughters were uh, driving into church on a Sunday morning, and we got T-boned, got in a very bad accident. Our vehicle got flipped over, and by the grace of God, the Lord protected us, but we were on our way into church on a Sunday morning, wham, somebody ran a red light, T-boned our vehicle, flipped us over onto our roof, and it was a very horrific experience. I'm thankful we were spared by the Lord and His protection. But after this transpired, this individual, who was a little disgruntled with me, um, basically went to our known leadership and said that the Lord had showed him that the reason why that accident happened was because something was not right with me spiritually and that that was God's way of trying to prohibit me basically from you know being able to get into church to minister on a Sunday morning and and that was God's way of trying to give me a wake up call now I have to admit my first response because my two of my three daughters was in the car was I basically wanted to just punch his lights out. I mean, just being very candid. And that I then would have been guilty of. You can say what you want about me, but don't tell me something's wrong with me and somebody whacked me and, and potentially almost injured two of my daughters. And so this was brought to the to the attention of our you know leadership. And so then all of a sudden, next I know I'm sitting here in this little meeting with this self-proclaimed prophet and uh, my uh, board of overseers. And we're, we're sitting there together. And he... Basically, and I just let him do his rant, and he just went on and on, and, 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 they, and it was to me, I, everything's a teachable opportunity for me. So I'm sitting there, and I'm letting my guys listen, listen. I let it go on for like five minutes. After it went on for like five minutes, I said, look, the Bible that I read says that you're not supposed to entertain an accusation against an elder, a spiritual leader, except by two or three witnesses. And I said, if you genuinely want to take as credible what he is saying about me, and you think that this is true, And you don't want to go according to the word of God either as a group of leaders on top of it that are sitting here. I said, I will not stand on the pulpit if something is wrong with me spiritually because I care too much about the flock to taint and pollute the body of Christ. So I said, you know what? Somebody met her working on a Sunday morning service and I walked out of the meeting and I drove home. And I said, I'm not going to pastor the church until you're comfortable that everything's all right with me spiritually. Before I even got home, one of my leaders called me. Well, you know, hey, just, you know, just, we don't really want to start studying. And, you know, and, and, but again, to me, the thing is this. Was I standing on, oh, you've offended me. You've hurt my feelings, you little self-proclaimed prophet. It had nothing to do with that. What it had to do with is you are violating the word of God. You are violating the scripture. This was not true. Do I have issues in my life? Of course I do. I should be getting hit every Sunday morning, quite honestly, I guess, right? Who doesn't? But there was no you know, genuine, grievous you know, thing that I was doing. I wasn't cheating on my wife or stealing money or you know, abusing you know, people. I mean, there was nothing substantial. It was just a disgruntled person and slander. And I'll tell you something beautiful. In the midst of that, fast forward 10 years later, that individual who did that called me up one day crying and said, I am so sorry, first of all, that it took me all these years, to humble myself enough to apologize to you. And he said, I was so wrong. I was proud. I was mad. And you know, what a beauty to see the full circle of nothing other than follow this book. That's what you do. You follow the Word of God. That's not a glory story for me. That's the reality of that we must honor the Word of God. It is crucial to do that. And look, it's important to recognize we should never jump to conclusions about things that we hear or think. Listen, folks, about anybody. It's just a spiritual principle. And that happens all the time. Oh, did you hear this and about him and her? And just and just and and well, they did that. And then all of a sudden we, we jump to all these conclusions. We don't have the facts. We don't really know what went on. We're just observing from the outside and we're making all these conclusions and deductions about people. Look, these are our comrades. Why are we doing that to each other in the church? (laughs) Like, we need each other to survive, man. (laughs) That's like shooting your own team. And so we have to be very careful. If there's no validated thing, we got two, I mean, it's different. You got two, three people saying, yes, we all can verify. Here's the facts. It's true. Now we're talking about something different. But when that's not the case, we have to keep ourselves in check and not jump to conclusions about things that we hear about. People can be very detrimental. He goes on verse 20 now to say, look, here's the balance of this. Those who are sinning, now this is in context, so he says, if it's true, those who are sinning rebuke in the presence of all that the rest also may fear. So in balance, God addresses what to do if after appropriate investigation it comes to light That sadly it is indeed true, a church leader is indeed guilty of transgressing, violating in moral conduct what is required of a spiritual leader according to Scripture. And he says when it's been validated credibly, then that church leader who's violated God's word and the standards required in Scripture is to experience a stronger response, look at it, a stronger response in disciplinary action because they're a leader. That's what God says. God says those who are sinning as an elder, a pastor, an overseer, if they indeed are guilty of violating the Scripture and living in sin in some way, moral failure, then he says they are to be rebuked in the presence of all. Again, not talking about here, as I just jokingly said a moment ago, the idea of routine human imperfections. Oh, look like Tony got a little impatient there. Bring him up to the church next Sunday. I mean, that's not what this is referring to. We, we understand that would be ridiculous. What this is referring to are occasions, and, and I pray they're as rare as possible in the body of Christ, when there is a genuine, sincere, defiance of the word of God, somebody living in secret sin, a pastor engaged in things that he should not be engaged in, some abusive behavior, stealing money, moral failure, adultery, you know, sexual impropriety, I mean, just clear defiance, something very grievous and obvious that disqualifies a man to continue being a leader. And he says, when that kind of a thing happens... There is to be a strong response because they are leader. Those who are sinning, he says, rebuke in the presence of all, referring congregationally. Again, that word rebuke means to expose or to bring to open light for conviction. It speaks of confronting openly. And again, that's a very strong thing. They are to be publicly dealt with because they violated a sacred duty, God says, And so because of that, there is to be a different response. Do we do this with every Christian? Of course not. The Word of God doesn't teach that. But God's Word does teach here in proper church function that since they served in an open public way, there is a purposeful need to address their correction, their reproof, their discipline in an open public way. Now, to do such, we use honest explanation in gracious ways, to indicate their guilt, and to purposely and clearly communicate that that leader needs to be removed from a position of leadership. And that we do that to make sure that people understand that. And again, I can tell you firsthand, on a few rare occasions, I've had to be a part of that. And it is a very difficult thing to do. It's an extremely unfortunate thing to have to do. But God says, because... They served publicly, and people look to them as an example. If they violate that sacred trust, their correction must be public as well. Why? Because they owe it to the people that they've hurt and that they've betrayed. So the rebuke and the confronting of their sin is to be done, he says, in the presence of all. That is, all the congregation. It's to be dealt with as a family matter. Lest the flock be left confused and misguided, there must be transparency, God says. There must be honesty. You can't leave the waters muddied, God says. That's a disservice to the body of Christ. It is wrong. It is is something that has to be done. And I can tell you this, folks, when that is not done biblically like that, and I've watched it sadly, Never under my charge, but I have watched in other congregations it not be done with biblically, and it's just kind of just hush, hush, and brush to the side when something's going on. I can tell you the magnification of damage that that causes long-term is horrendous. It's horrendous. And I can tell you this, though by the grace of God I've only had to do it a few rare occasions, when it is done properly, it is the best pathway for forward healing and reconciliation and the body remains healthier and they understand and love is the response. And he says, another reason for this, not only doing it in the presence of all is also it's a deterrent, deterrent. Look what he says, that the rest also may fear. The idea is that as we do something like that, you have to address a leader who's entered into moral failure, who sinned or failed or abused their leadership role. And you do that publicly because the sins of a man of leadership are more grievous because the hurt factor goes way further. They've betrayed a sacred stewardship. They've served lots of people. Now they're stumbling lots of people. But he says, when you do that, according to the word of God, on a rare occasion, God says, here's what it does. It sends a shockwave of sobriety through the body of Christ. Because what it says to the congregation, and God uses everything for a teachable moment. He's a very great teacher. God says, look, if this man your pastor, your, if, if he is not going to be tolerated doing wrong things, and I, and God says, if he's not going to get away with it, and he ain't getting no special privileges, it's basically God's way of kind of sending fear through the body of Christ saying, look, sin has consequences. Stop playing with the matchbook. And it's just another teachable occasion where God, in a sense, conveys a message To us in the body of Christ. You know, the biblical principle here, of course, is the more responsibility someone has, God says, the more accountable they are. And the more severe, for that matter, the judgment they must face. Jesus said, remember Luke 12, everyone who's been given much, of him much will be demanded. And the one who has been entrusted with much, more will be asked or required. Jesus said that. It's a biblical principle. The more we know, the more God expects of us. The more opportunity or responsibility or influence we have, Jesus said you should be held to a higher standard. And if you fail, it should be a more severe punishment. Again, this is important. It tells us the same thing in the book of James, chapter 3. It says that those who are teachers will undergo and receive a stricter, that's the word, stricter judgment. So when we teach the word of God, God says, that's a great privilege, but don't ever forget the responsibility because he says, there's a stricter judgment. Why? Because if we violate what we're teaching, God says, that, that's hypocrisy. You're telling other people what to do and teaching them, and then you're not living in consistency with it in your own personal life. And so God says, there's that strong warning, a stricter judgment. Certainly not one of my favorite Bible verses, but I got to live by it. And anyone who teaches the word of God has got to live by it. Do you teach children? Are you a parent who teaches children? God says, if you're teaching, there's there's a stricter requirement of us. God holds us to that higher standard. It's appropriate. Verse 21, he goes on to say, I charge you before God and the Lord Jesus Christ and the elect angels that you observe these things without prejudice, doing nothing with partiality. Now, no doubt having to exercise somewhat, you might say, these heavy and awkward things would be something that's a little bit hard at times to carry out. I mean, think about what we just talked about so far, navigating the process of determining a salary for paying a spiritual worker in the church and having to work through the dynamics of that or hearing about guilt and slander and trying to process that or literally disciplining and removing a leader from their office because of something that's happened that's an infraction. He's going to talk about uh, appointing leadership next. And, and the thing that we want to remember here is what we all realize is the church is a family, right? And so because it's a family, there's lots of relational bonds. And we become close friends and comrades, and there's all this emotional bond and friendship. And he says, if you and I have to be able at times to obey verses 17 through 25 and what's in this section here, we have to be able in order to honor God at times to detach our emotional connection for honor of God first and foremost, because this can be a real quandary to struggle with doing right. He charges before quite a set of witnesses there in verse 21. He says, I'm charging you to observe and obey these things. Look what he says. Before God the Father, the Lord Jesus Christ, and the elect angels. Well, that's quite a court to do something in front of, huh? Why does he use those three? Because from Paul's perspective, in the church, the Father's involved. Jesus is involved. The angels are overseeing and involved. And so he says, look, they're all part of the church too. They're just the unseen members, but they're there. And so he says, they have to be honored. And notice these things are to be observed. He says, without any special treatment, no prejudice, no partiality, there's no exceptions given, no excess pity because you're my friend. No no partiality because, man, we're emotionally connected. There's simply one goal for the benefit of God's honor, we must do what the word of God says here. And that we can't allow the emotional detachment, God must always be honored. First Samuel chapter 2, we see this happening where Eli the priest had two sons who also were in ministry with him, Eli's sons in the priesthood. And those two sons, it says, were corrupt, they were perverted, and Eli was just dismissing it and he didn't want to deal with it. And God rebuked him for it and said to him, Why do you honor your sons more than me? God said, you're letting your emotional attachment to those individuals override your relationship to me. And God said, that's wrong. We should never, ever, we never, folks, want to be guilty of letting our emotional connections to someone override being obedient to the word of God. However that unfolds, with our children, some parents don't correct because of emotional attachment to their children. Some people don't obey the word of God because their emotional attachment or friendship to this. Emotional attachment is secondary. Honoring God and honoring the presence of Jesus and the angels. This is the, we want to honor God above all else. And he says, well, sometimes that's important to remember. You've got to do these things because it's right to honor God above all else. Verse 22, he says, and don't lay hands on anyone hastily, nor share in other people's sins, keep yourself pure. So this speaks of laying hands, we talk about four, on someone publicly for recognition purposes, to announce or maybe identify or pray over them as a leader in some capacity, to make it evident to others we believe God's hand is upon this person. We believe God is working through them. We, we, in a sense, recognize or authorize them to lead in some capacity in a ministry or to be a leader in a church. And he says, don't be hasty and move too quickly with this without taking the time to really get to know them, to become aware of where they are in their spiritual life, to get to know about their heart and where their heart is, to ensure if they're ready for such, to be careful to know if they're the right person, for such, and that before we automatically endorse, hey, this is a representation of our ministry or this is someone we believe God's hand is upon them, he says, don't do that prematurely because that can cause various problems if you're too hasty in that process. And he says, it can create a real difficulty and it's poor stewardship because that becomes a reflection of the senior leadership of who they just acknowledged and recognized. And then if problems happen, look, nothing is a guarantee. Nothing's a guarantee. You can lay hands on someone or recognize someone as a leader of a ministry or this or that, and, and things can go awry. But God's just saying the more you can avoid that, the better, by just being patient and using good judgment. Because when that happens from time to time, if things do go awry and you don't take that slow approach, what you do is now people are questioning your judgment. Oh, I can't believe it. it just, and, and, and it just creates a real messy thing. So God's just saying, look, prudence is very patient in making major decisions. And, and whether it's appointing a leader or whether it's anything that we're doing in our lives, folks, it's important to take a patient approach with major decisions. You patiently vet it out and take time and work through things and, and let emotions and thoughts and circle because you want to take time, be, be certain. Do you really know that person? Have you seen, have you watched some things? Is there observation? Again, these are things he says that if there's a greater impact, we want to be really slow in any kind of decisions we make that have a big impact. Look what Paul says, verse 23, no longer drink only water, but use a little wine for your stomach's sake and your frequent infirmities. Now, all those who want to drink in the body of Christ, this is one of their go-to verses, but I'm going to destroy that for you. Paul, as a wise, mature believer and a wise, more mature leader, is advising Timothy, who's a younger minister serving in the Lord's work, here's what he's trying to do, to advise him to live in a balanced way. No doubt what Paul said in chapter 3, where he said there that elders should not be partaking of alcoholic beverages because of their responsibility and their role to make sure they're on track and their judgment's not impaired and they're a good example. No doubt Timothy heard that, being a protege of Paul, wanting to honor the Lord, wanting to have a fruitful ministry and be spiritually effective. Apparently, Timothy held to a complete abstinence policy. And he was not drinking any wine. And he resolved to abstain. However, in the ancient culture, in that area, there were no water purification systems. So as Timothy was only drinking water... Apparently, he was having routine digestive trouble as the result of the bacteria and the parasites that existed in that area where he was drinking the water, which would be causing what Paul refers to here, enduring frequent stomach infirmities. So he's describing Timothy here, dealing with all the symptomatic issues of pain and diarrhea and dehydration and all the symptomatic effects that go along with having all these stomach issues from the water sickening him. And Paul says, look, you got a health problem. i got a practical solution for that. And Paul says, the practical solution is this. Timothy, you got to be open to a little bit of balance in your life, son. Appreciate your heart that you don't want to drink wine recreationally and you want to abstain from alcohol. That's great. But he says, look, What I'm recommending to you to keep your life balanced is, he says, no longer drink only water, but, and watch the language, please here, use a little, use a little wine for your frequent infirmity's sake. In other words, adding a small amount of alcohol would help kill and neutralize the bugs and the bad stuff to help diminish a little bit more the parasitic infections, and the problems from drinking bad water causing all his digestive illness. Now, again, Paul was used by God at times, was he not, to bring about supernatural healings in people's lives. At times, Paul would be used as an instrument of God to bring forth gifts of miraculous healings. I'm sure Paul prayed for Timothy's health. I'm sure he prayed that God would bring a healing in his life and the digestive problems that he had, but yet apparently, God did not heal him, so Paul says, Timothy, let me teach you balance, son. Let me teach you practical wisdom and flexibility. There is a medicinal approach to this. Use a little bit of alcohol. Timothy, don't drink recreationally. That's not what I'm telling you to do here. Use a little bit of alcohol in the water, mix it together, and it'll have a medicinal effect, and it'll neutralize some of the problems that you're having. And you'll be more effective to be able to be healthy and strong and and to serve. And I think the lesson here God expects for us To recognize, is there is practical wisdom as a part of spiritual life. We never want to get to the place where we think it is unspiritual to use good reasoning as a human being, to not use practical wisdom. Whether, look, whether it's in medicinal forms of taking care of our health, or whether it's in any other area of our lives, my encouragement, and I think the Word of God helps us to understand, beware of extremes. Beware of even hyper-spirituality. Live in grace. Can God do miracles? Yes. But God also just as much can work in everyday practical physical affairs, and God can work in very supernaturally natural ways. And it is wise to live in balance, to use flexibility, and don't dismiss that God can work through all different things. Verse 24 and 25, Paul concludes saying, Some men's sins are clearly evident preceding them to judgment. In other words, you can tell right away that person's gonna fall. But those of others may follow later. Likewise, the good works of some are clearly evident and those that are otherwise cannot be hidden. So Paul seems to circle back to this idea of appointing spiritual leaders. And it's almost as if here, he says, look, this is why I'm telling you don't be hasty. There's a principle behind it. He says, waiting and watching people allows time for us to not make mistakes in judging them wrongly. Because he shows in verse verse 24 and in verse 25, we can overestimate someone and then be let down if sin comes out later. Or we can underestimate a person and overlook them, and it might have been a really good opportunity to work in partnership with them, and we overlook them too quickly. And so he says in verse 24, some people's sinful practices and tendencies, they're real evident. You, you can just see that guy's involved in some things, not, not good right now. He says, other people, it'll take a little bit of time till their sin rises to the surface. And some people can put on a good show publicly, spiritually. And then all of a sudden, after a little bit of time, you let life unfold, you wait for some of the fruit to be produced and to ripen, and all of a sudden it comes to the surface. There were some issues and some things going on, and you go, glad I waited there. Because then the sin comes to the surface later. And he says, in the same way, we can underestimate people by basically overlooking someone. Because basically, someone, you may have them they first come. You're like, man, that person is a gem. Look at them. They jumped right in. They're serving. They're doing good work. It's clearly evident they're going to be a great servant. And then he says, there are others who their good works, perhaps, it takes a little bit of time, but it can't be hidden eventually that they're a good servant of the Lord. See, some people, maybe they're a little bit more bashful. Maybe they're a little more timid and reserved, and they may be somebody who kind of blossoms a little bit more slowly, and he says, here, look, you don't want to make the mistake of overlooking somebody, because you just didn't give them enough time to bloom, and then all of a sudden, now you're like, man, I'm glad I took a little bit longer. This this guy's becoming incredible, or this gal's becoming such a wonderful person and a great worker, and he says, we don't want to overestimate and be let down or underestimate and dismiss someone, and again, God's reminding us here, I think, the principle is it takes time to get to know people. Time reveals all things. As you interact with people, take a season and get to know people. Don't make too quick predetermined judgments because you may find yourself incredibly disappointed and let down because you think, man, this person, wow. And your wow may be there are really good actors, what you meant. And then you're hurt and disappointed. Or it may be, oh, I don't know about this guy. And then you give him a little bit of time. And he works his way through the practice squad, and then he's the next, I don't know, who's the best, whoever. <laughs> Professional player. don't want to give props to anybody. Take time. And what's the most crucial thing? Live according to this. This, not what we think or feel according to this. Let's stand together. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the word of God.